Hi, I'm Mark Kernian and I teach chemistry. Hi, I'm Jack Kernian and I teach physics. And welcome to the My Science Podcast, where learning about chemistry and physics becomes what it always should have been, fun and interesting, yet serious and valuable. Mark and I are identical twin brothers who started our careers as engineers and switched to science education more than three decades ago. That's over 60 years of combined experience teaching high school students about the amazing insights of the physical sciences. And we want to share that experience with you. So if you have any comments or questions about today's podcast, send them to Kernian at myscience-prep.com. That's K-E-R-N-I-O-N at myscience-prep.com. We'd love to hear from you. Okay, Mark, so today we are going to talk about the work of a British physicist who lived in the 19th century and how his work contributed to one of the most important ideas in the history of Western science. How about that? Uh, important <laughs> ideas are always good. Yeah. All right. But like many ideas in physics, you know, what we're going to talk about today is an idea uh, whose meaning has evolved over time. But its current definition and usage among scientists is rock solid. So it's also an idea that is commonly misunderstood, unfortunately, by non-scientists. So we're going to emphasize that as well, just to make sure everybody's on the same page with this idea. Okay, that's uh, not an uncommon thing uh, yeah. where people don't have a complete understanding of the strict definition, right? but sort of use it loosely sometimes. So let's get it really down. Yeah, I want to make it so that it's, there's no wiggle room with this, even though it is used quite a bit in uh, in society to talk about lots of different things that are not even physical sometimes. But, you know, listeners from previous episodes of our podcast may have remembered we talked about the concept of inertia. Do you yes, remember that? I, I recall that episode. Yeah, yes. and it's like resistance to changes in states of motion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we can appropriately use that idea in everyday conversation. Like, I think I brought up an example in that podcast about how you're lazy because when you <laughs> hang around on the couch, sometimes that's for hours at a time. It's just so you're <laughs> sitting there, sitting there eating popcorn and... You know, just, drinking, just an, an drinking exa- beer little exaggeration. <laughs> yeah, I don't even drink. <laughs> it would be, it would not be, I should say, anti-scientific to claim that if you said, "Oh, it's due to inertia," that that wouldn't be like an appropriate use of that term, right? Yes. Yeah. So it, it has its um, usefulness in our everyday language yeah. in an appropriate way. Yeah, and it, it kind of coincides with the way it's used in science as well. Mm-hmm. But there are other scientific terms, and specifically one that we're going to talk about today, where the everyday talk about that term sometimes is used inappropriately, and, and we have to just make sure, as I said before, that we have a real strict definition of it and stick to it. And if somebody is using it incorrectly, claiming to be uh, you know in a scientific usage we have to make sure and pe- tell people hey that's not the way that should be used that's right at least that's the way i feel about it i may be not not in an you know, arrogant kind of way but just no not at, at all <laughs> just to make sure people are saying it correctly because i i have encountered people who use this particular term in a kind of just a really loose way and i think we need to be able to pin it down so okay i'm anxious to hear the, what it is <laughs> the idea i'm going to talk about today with you is the concept of energy Hmm. Okay. It's a well-defined idea in physics, but I'm going to start off by asking you to tell me examples of how you've heard the term that's out there in regular life. Where where do you hear that term? How do you think it's used? Well, I hear people talking about the fact that they're out of energy, you know, or that, that they're tired or something mm-hmm. like that. Like uh, lack of energy uh, will not keep people from doing things that they want to do. So that's that, something that's that comes not to too mind. far off, actually. You know, I mean, like that that's a, a decent way of talking about energy. Have you ever heard it being used kind of in what you would consider to be an incorrect way? An incorrect kind of yeah. way to use energy. 
Um, I mean, off the top of my head, no, okay. I can't recall. <laughs> well, maybe it doesn't bother you as much as it bothers me, but I no. hear people, sometimes it'll be like on a television show or a radio show, even other podcasts, where people talk about energy being emitted from one person to another in terms of emotional energy or, oh, sure. oh the vibes yeah. in the room are wrong. Right. You know, they're giving off uh, some sense of energy that's maybe bad energy, you know, mm-hmm. oh, you're bringing, bringing negativity to the room and things like that. Have you heard right. that done before? Yeah, I've heard that before. And I think that when people use it, they, there's a particular meaning associated with it that people mm-hmm. understand. It's just not the way well, we use it scientifically. That's, again, that, that's okay if there's a usage issue that people want to say, well, I'm going to do it this way and everybody understands what I mean. But there are people, though, who specifically talk about energy in a what they think is a real physical way and mm-hmm. uh, specifically hear about this thing sometimes like with new age talk and so on you know like where this this these vibes in the room have real meaning for people and so mm-hmm. on does that not something you know about or obviously it doesn't bother you like it bothers me i can tell that that's okay yeah yeah there's no doubt about it but Mm -hmm. um yeah maybe you're a little bit more perturbed (laughs) about energy because you're a physicist (laughs) it could be yeah it could be anyway um you know that that the term energy is as i said before very specifically defined and so let's carefully define it now so that we all are on the same page here Mm -hmm. um if we have energy in a system that means the system has the ability to do work that's right. Okay. I know that. So work is something we need to also define because mm-hmm. it's one of the things that's needed to be understood in order to understand what energy is. But I'm not going to keep on defining things like, you know, I need <laughs> energy and then I need work and then I need something else and so on. We right. can kind of stop it at that point and do a really quick definition of what work is and then stop right there because okay. I think people will get it mm-hmm. once they know that. We're going to say that work is done when a force is applied to an object and then that object moves. That's right. right? I, I mean, I use in my classes oftentimes when I talk about energy that way, a force times the distance. Yeah. So as long as somebody pushes on something and that object moves, then work has been done. And that means that there must have been energy in the system that's doing the forcing. Right. So right. you can't have energy being used up if you only push on something. It has to be pushed on and it has to move, okay? So that's the definition I want the audience to really keep in mind, okay? Okay. So just to make sure that you get this, let me ask you a quick question. I know we went golfing earlier today, so this should be an easy one for you. When a golf club exerts a force on a golf ball and the golf ball moves, do you do work on the ball? No, I think that I don't do work on the ball. You sure? Uh, um, Yeah, I think that the club head does work on that's the ball. That's right. Yeah, yeah you got because it. that's the thing that's making the ball move. Yeah, the force is being applied by the cl- club on the ball, so it does work on the ball because the ball does move. Are you doing any work at all when you're doing your swing? Because I've seen your swing. It yeah. doesn't look like it does, it does very much work. <laughs> Who won today? That's all I have to say. <laughs> no, but uh, I am doing work too. I'm doing work on the club to make it move. That's right. So we really need to be uh, force-specific and object-specific here. What force is acting on what object? And then the big question is, does it move? So like, if you take a force that you're applying to the wall of a big building, you know, you're going to get tired probably because you're pushing all day long trying to make this building move. Fatigue's going to set in and so on. Why is it that we would say there's no work done on the building? Well, yeah, because just based on the definition, once again, it has mm-hmm. to move. And if it's not moving, then no work is being done. Yeah, that's right. So keep, keeping all this in mind, we need to have both of those things happening. But people will say, aren't you getting tired? Mm-hmm. You know, why is it that somebody gets tired when they're not doing any work? Well, they they like they likely are doing work, but just not something that 
you know, uh, the particular object that you're looking at to move isn't can moving, you, but can other you think of are. what object might be moving to make uh, the people tired? Yeah, I, I, I just think like um, you know, your body is doing things like in uh, in, this, in your system, body bodily systems are are doing mm-hmm. things, and uh, and so the movement that's taking place there is what. Yeah, it's within your body. So like if Mm -hmm. your heart is pumping, it's moving blood around, right? So there's work done by your heart on the blood and so on. That takes energy away from your body and so on. And so you're just going to be doing the work internally in a sense. It's not going to be done on that building. So that's the really key thing. And we also need to recognize that it's, it's, it's important to see that people who do mental work are not doing physical work. So if an accountant goes to work and all day long she sits at her desk and crunches numbers and so on, comes home really tired and so on, you know, that's that's not a lot of physical work being done there, even though we might say, oh, she's going off to work. It's a different sort of work when it's mental work. It isn't like work. Um, uh, getting blood to her brain and all that kind of stuff. Well, make uh, you, you actually burn calories. Yeah, by thinking. I'm not saying yeah. there's no physical work okay. done. And obviously, if she's moving a pencil around or whatever, sure. you know, or some papers and so on. Mm-hmm. But that's different from like a, a construction worker who's moving all kinds of blocks and things around where there's real physical work that can be measured right. on the outside. So right. again, I'm emphasizing something a lot here. And I know it might seem like to the audience, well, he keeps saying the same thing over and over again. But the idea is that if we don't understand it really carefully, we're going to misuse it. And that's, that's a right. big thing for me is to make sure that the general public understands what these definitions are that are super um, well-defined and right. they should be used that way. And so, Yeah, and if, and if not, then we sort of go astray, you know, like right. uh, and things uh, get said that really aren't true. Exactly, yeah. So we're going to take a little break here, and when we come back, we're going to play a game that I think my brother is going to fail at. So <laughs> let's check and see. We'll be right back. Okay, thanks. Hi, I'm Ben from the band Sonic Acrylic, who provided the music for this podcast. We just put out our new album, Alternates. Here's a clip from track four, Disasteroid. That was Disasteroid off of our new album, Alternates. To hear more, go to Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, or anywhere else you like to listen. Or head on over to our website, sonicacrylic.com. So um, we're going to play a little game here, and I invite the audience to play along with us, where I will say the name of a famous scientist, okay? And you need to tell me, Mark, whether or not that particular person made significant contributions to our understanding of energy. Okay. That's, remember, that's that the main topic today. Yeah. And I want to issue a warning here before we start that this list does only contain men. And I think that's really unfortunate. It's a reflection of the history of Western ideas. Most of the time, the history is skewed in that way. And it's not often a full picture. And also, the horrible part about that is it's... Um, it's made it so that some things that might have moved forward more quickly or in a better way just never happened because it excluded women from the work. So I just well, want to hopefully, hopefully that's that going to change. There, you know? Uh, and you know, as time goes by here, I think it is a bit still mm-hmm. um, long way uh, to go. Not, still, not, not there you know? where we want to be for yeah. sure. So yeah. again, there are going to be all men in this list, and I apologize for that ahead of time, knowing that there were probably women along the way who helped and probably could have even done a better job. But so, so <laughs> here we go. Right. I'm going to yeah. say some names here. Antoine Lavoisier, 
Did he have anything to do with energy? I would say no to Antoine Lavoisier. He he was more of the father of chemistry, and chemistry does have a lot to do with energy, but I don't think he defined anything in the way that we could use today. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> he, he introduced what we call caloric theory of heat in 1783, oh. and we'll be we'll be talking about that. That's a surprise. I thought you would get that one because I know you had mentioned him previously with me and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, but maybe you were just looking at one aspect of his work, but he was a really great scientist. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So the next so. one. He was beheaded as well. Did he was beheaded? That? I did yes, not yeah. know that. He was, a, in a sense, like a tax collector in uh-huh. France. And uh-huh. uh, so uh, after the uh, French Revolution, when everyone was getting their heads chopped off, mm-hmm. um, uh, he was arrested. And um, being the experimenter that he that he was asked when he was about to get his head chopped off for his assistant to um in the be in the uh, audience or whatever in the town square and uh he was going to see how many times he could blink after his head was cut off so it was an experiment to the bitter end and and the apocryphal it might be apocryphal uh, that the the story goes that he was able to blink 17 times wow okay i guess he ran out of energy i guess (laughs) okay so i'm sorry i shouldn't make fun of beheadings Mm. but uh galileo galilei is the next person i want you to let me know is did, did he have anything to do with our current understanding of energy Again, I, I would think no. I think he was more like in terms of, of motion, um, you know, uh, kinematics and things mm-hmm. like that. So I would say no to Galileo. And you're right on that one. I mean, it wasn't that he didn't talk about motion. And motion is a form mm-hmm. of energy. But it mm-hmm. wasn't something that specifically was mentioned in his work. Right. How about Albert Einstein? Yes. Albert Why Einstein do you say definitely, that? Because he, he uh, put the equivalence out there between um, mass and energy. Yeah. And E equals mc squared. Very, very good. That's exactly what I was going to say if you missed that. So just make, yeah, make yeah. sure. Yeah. How about this next one? Your favorite guy, Carl Chalet. Carl Chalet had nothing to do with energy. <laughs> he didn't. And I only put that on there because I know he's your favorite chemist, mm-hmm. or one of them anyway. Mm-hmm. How about a famous scientist that many people have heard about in the past when it comes to waves and the, the idea of how we can quantify waves? His name's Thomas Young. He oh, was yeah. in 1800 or so. Right, yeah. He defined electromagnetic radiation in the sense that it was uh, that was wavy by uh, doing his double slit experiment. Uh-huh. Very famous. Exp- one of the, I think, most famous experiments of all time. Did that have anything to do with energy? Um, well, not in terms of defining energy, but uh, showing that it had wave-like characteristics, maybe. So, okay, but yeah, not definitionally, I guess. Well, it turns out in 1800, he actually used the term energy in a publication. Huh. But it didn't catch on. Oh. I mean, it's something to come up with this great idea. But then I guess, you know, depending on who was reading you back then and how famous you were. Well, um, he, he actually is amazing. Oh, yeah. The, the book Paul that I read him. about him is, is referred to as, as The Last Man Who Knew Everything. Yeah. And uh, he, he was reading by the age of two. Wow. Had gone through the Bible by the age of four. Uh, he he, he uh, mastered like eight languages by the time he was eight years old, and he became a doctor um, by the time he was like seventeen or eighteen. And so he truly is a polymath, somebody who's good at so many different things. Yeah, it's really interesting to read about people like that. Mm-hmm. Here's another really famous person, and you can tell me whether or not he had anything to do with energy, but also super bright, James Prescott Jewell. I would say definitely because we name a unit of energy in his honor. <laughs> That's so. the clue, yeah. yeah. He is a scientist that I really want to spend most of the time today talking about. But before I do, I want to mention a quick list of other scientists who also contributed to our understanding of energy. 
I'm going to say their names only to emphasize how many people help to sort out this idea. Energy is not one of those terms where, okay, one person is completely responsible, right? We have all kinds of different people that contributed. And you're going to see that Jewel talked a lot about what's called the mechanical equivalent of heat. These other people had things to say about that as well and more about energy. So it's kind of like what you'll see in a future podcast on quantum mechanics. Unlike, say, the theory of relativity where it all focuses in on Einstein, quantum mechanics had a whole bunch of people that were contributing. And energy is like that as well. So I want the listeners to be reminded of these names just so they can maybe um, remember if they heard about them when they were back in school or currently in school, just to plant seeds for further investigation and so on. And I want you to tell me, if you did hear of these people, Mark, what they did, okay? All right. How about Benjamin Thompson? He's also known as Count... Rumford. Rumford. Yeah, right. I did. I was going to say that. I did know his, I don't know what you would call it, uh, what kind of a name that is, an yeah. honorary name yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I've heard of him. Um, Do you know what he did? What was his famous I, contribution? I, I, I want to say that he developed some kind of a stove. Uh, <laughs> or, or maybe uh, not. I don't know. Well, I mean, it, you could cook something on the thing that he did, but only because it got really hot. He did all these like cannon boring experiments. Oh, okay. So he was able to find out whenever he used a, like a drill bit with a piece of metal, mm-hmm. the metal got super, super hot. You know, and um, no matter what, if you kept on drilling, you kept on getting heat. So it kind of like showed that there was like something associated with the motion rather than something contained within the material. And that was the old caloric theory that we're going to talk about in a second. Mm -hmm. And Humphrey Davy is another name that did something similar to him. I put them together all the time because Humphrey Davy basically took took two ice cubes, rubbed them together, and they were able to melt. Again, showing that there's something about motion and heat, something that connects it to. And that was really important when it comes to the work. Humphrey Davy um, was the um, uh, mentor for Michael Faraday. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, at the Royal Society. Uh Uh, uh, When Faraday... Um, you know, was was actually looking for things to do. He became an apprentice to to Faraday, and then, I'm sorry, became an apprentice to uh, Humphrey Davy, and ultimately then uh, became the headmaster of the uh, Royal yeah. Society itself. And, and Faraday, as we'll see again, I'm sure he, his name will come up a lot in the future. Mm-hmm. When it comes to uh, physics spe- specifically, I'd say he's one of the top three or four. Well, I would say he's like like one of the greatest experimentalists yeah, of all time, for sure. Yeah, very uneducated though in a formal kind of way, though. Well, he was able yeah. to learn on his own. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple more names here. Uh, Gustavo Gaspard de Coriolis and Jean-Victor Poncelet. Do you know what they did? This is kind of going back to something we just defined earlier. What was their famous contribution? Do you know? And when I hear Coriolis, I think about the Coriolis effect, maybe. Right, right. And isn't that about how uh, how um, toilets yeah. flush in one direction in <laughs> yeah. the northern hemisphere versus the opposite? Yeah. I don't even know if that's true or not, yeah. but is that I, the same fellow? It is the same fellow, but what these two did uh, that are associated with energy is they were the ones who defined work as we use it today. We talk about something that's pushed and it moves, then work is done on that object. So that was, I wanted to give them credit because we did describe that earlier. It's an important part of the definition. Yeah, yeah. And then I have another one here, uh, William Thompson. He's known as Lord Kelvin. Right. Yeah, I do know things about him. Are you familiar with Lord Kelvin? Yeah, because um, he gave us the absolute temperature scale, uh, you know, where absolute zero is the lowest possible temperature. Mm -hmm. Um, But he uh, has that name, Lord Kelvin, because uh, he he engineered the first transatlantic cable so that the United States and England could communicate with each other quickly. It's really interesting. And that's how he got the name Lord Kelvin uh, granted to him by the Queen. Hmm. That's really neat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you've... A lot of these people, I mean, were so smart and contributed to qualities of life in many different ways. You know, yeah. interestingly, Kelvin, Lord Kelvin met 
James Jewell when Jewell was on his honeymoon in Chamonix, France. Hmm. And I guess it was interesting that the two scientists, when they met, decided when they were there to conduct an experiment at some waterfall. Uh-huh. And I can just imagine, you know, and Jewell's telling, hey, Lord <laughs> Kelvin's here, honey. I'm going to go do an experiment with him at the waterfall. Not a good uh, way to start uh, no, I don't think so either. And then finally, two names, Herman Helmholtz and Julius Robert Van Mayer. Have you heard of either of them? I've heard of Helmholtz. Um, mm-hmm. Like the, um, there's an equation named after him, um, and the it's slipping one, my right? mind. Yeah, yeah. A chemistry one, mm-hmm. uh, and I, it's I'm, it's slipping my mind. Uh, but um, but the other fellow I've not heard okay. of. Okay, well, they work together. Oh, Gibbs Helmholtz. The Gibbs uh, Helmholtz yeah, equation. Uh, yeah, yeah. Gibbs worked with him. I mm-hmm. guess he was his. Um, Who was uh, Gibbs? Student. <laughs> uh, Josiah Will, Josiah Willard Gibbs, most famous thermodynamic. Uh, you know, uh, scientists of all time, I huh. think. Yeah. I'm sure we'll probably get into that when you oh, yeah. have yeah. something. Uh, he got the first uh, PhD uh, in engineering in the United States. Wow, interesting. Yale University. Hmm. Well, what the two of them did in terms of energy was they defined something that's super important, and I think kids begin to learn when they're in third and fourth grade, and that is that if a system has a certain amount of energy in it, it, energy doesn't change. You know, like there's a what's called a conservation of energy yes. idea. Yeah. But there are various types of energy that can transform back and forth. Like electrical energy can become chemical energy. Mm-hmm. Nuclear energy can become radiant energy. Motion, what's called mechanical energy, can become heat. All these sorts of things are going to be able to transform back and forth. That's right. But the total amount in any system that's closed is going to stay the same. So that conservation of energy probably... If you talk, talk about ranking ideas in, in science, I think it would have to be up there in the top one, two, or three, don't Absolutely, you think? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, from a chemistry perspective, we call it the first law of thermodynamics. Right, right. So it's really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, think about like when you put a battery in a car, a toy car, or even in a Tesla car mm-hmm. with a whole bunch of batteries in it and stuff. That energy was stored in those batteries chemically, and due to chemical reactions, that energy gets released in the form of motion for that car, right? So yes. uh, th- th- these people made really great contributions. And when we think about the the ideas that seem pretty obvious to us now, they weren't obvious in the past. No. So I'm, I'm mentioning all these names just to give them their due. You know, if we're talking about energy, along the way, all these people contributed to it. Yeah, I think that's pretty common. Uh, we, we sort of take advantage of what it is that been done before and it seems so simple to us as we take a look at it from the vantage point that we have now but it really takes a while to build this understanding up yes i agree and we're going to talk in a second after we take our next break here about the contributions that james jewell gave to the idea of energy okay looking forward to it this is ben again from sonic acrylic really hope you enjoyed the clip we played at the last break gonna play another one here for you off of track six on the album This is called Forever. That was a clip off of track six, Forever. You can find more at Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Music, and wherever else you listen. Thanks. 
Okay, so Mark, why do you think that we were talking about like energy transformation specifically at the end of the last segment? We talked about like motion maybe being converted into another type of energy, like heat or vice versa, those sorts of things. Um, why do you yeah. think that's that's super important? I think it's to important me because when we talk about James Joule specifically. But go ahead. Oh, I just think it's important to be able to have energy transform so that it's more we could use it more in different mm -hmm. different situations i mean um you know heat would be really good when you want to cook food yeah. but it's not really good when you want to communicate <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know or, yeah so. yeah so so there are various ways that the practical aspects of one type of energy can be utilized by human beings for the good uh, we need to be able to make those transformations and find out how much energy we get in one type compared to another type and so on. And we know that energy is not going to be created or destroyed in a system that's closed. But what we want to find out now is how equivalent are these different sorts of energies, mm. how we go from one type to the other and so on. And that's what James Joule did. He had a, an idea that he called the mechanical equivalent of heat. And prior to these, uh, this idea, you have to remember that there were a lot of people that didn't see those two things as the same phenomenon. Right. You know? So he, he wrote a famous paper that was delivered to the British Association for the Advancement of Science in 1845 in Cambridge, England. And he described the details of that experiment and his estimate that the mechanical energy of 119 foot-pounds of force is equivalent to one British thermal unit. Have you mm -hmm. heard that term before when it comes to energy? I've not heard that relationship, mm -hmm. but I mean, I've heard of a BTU. Oh. Basically, yeah, basically what he's saying is that there's a, there's a certain amount of like uh, push and motion, like one foot of motion, one pound of force. That's the combination to get the work, right? Mm -hmm. That's equal to uh, a unit, 819 of those is equal to a unit that it was called traditionally the British thermal unit for heat. Okay. So we would always use that in terms of what heat is. Mm -hmm. So there's a relationship there. Yeah, finally um, get the, an actual number yeah. mm -hmm. that says if you do a certain amount of work, because you're moving something over a certain distance with a certain push, you're going to get a certain amount of heat out of it if you convert it all to that. So okay. it's pretty amazing to be able to get that. You had to come up with some detailed experiments that he outlined in the papers that he presented. And um, eventually, after a lot of work over the years, got a better and better number for that. And we'll that talk happens. about that number mm -hmm. later. Um, do you remember what a BTU is, though? This is going back to maybe like the kinds of units we might have used well, a long time ago. I think a lot science, of right? um, a lot of uh, energy terms are associated with how much energy it takes to do something. Mm -hmm. So, like um, maybe s how much energy it takes to make water change temperature or something. Right, like that. and it's not the water moving; it's the water changing temperature. Yeah. Right, mm -hmm. so you're heating up water, making the temperature go up. But BTU is what you need to raise one pound of water by one degree Fahrenheit. Okay, you know? yeah. So basically what Jewel is saying that uh, heat is a form of energy no different from motion. So I can make motion of something heat up water. Mm -hmm. So he would have like paddle wheel experiments or you know, maybe have a horse attached to uh, a pole that was attached to a paddle wheel that is in the water. And the motion of the horse can get converted into the warming of the water. Didn't then, lose a lot of energy, though? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. 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 You had to make sure that particular experiment wouldn't be a good one to get a, a, a conversion from. factor. Yeah. But you could the see devices, the right. Yeah. Well, the devices that he came up with were able to get rid of the possible losses as much okay. as possible. Anyway. Yes. So um, when you look at the papers that he presented to these uh to these institutions, they are really amazing. They're like classic lab reports that I ask my students mm -hmm. to do. And sometimes students don't want to do them. But here's a guy, you know, a long time ago mm -hmm. who went through the trouble to create a lab report, basically present that lab report in the same formula form and format that we talk about nowadays. And I think it's important. Like I like to show my students that 
these things were done a long time ago in the same way that I'm asking them to do it now. Right. It's not like scientists had a different way of doing things back then. Once science began its modern era, we've been following a tradition for a while. Yeah, there's there's nothing magical about the way famous scientists have uh, gone about doing things. It's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of uh, uh, recording things and sifting through the data and looking for the things that you want to find and uh, and then having substantiation for those kinds of things. It's it's just a lot of work. Yeah, and then once you get that work done, people complain maybe it wasn't right. <laughs> or they'll say, hey, you know, you forgot about this. But that's, that's the scientific, the whole thing. Yeah. that's the endeavor of science is to put a conjecture out there be uh, willing to talk to people about it, even if they say you're doing it incorrectly, and then maybe get better through the course of this dialogue or these argumentations that go back and forth, don't you yes, think? Yes, absolutely. And I think that most people don't appreciate it. Just because something is said doesn't mean that it's you know, uh, absolute truth. Things change as more information comes in and different perspectives are brought to the data, and, and uh, we, we get better as a result of that. Yeah, and certainly Jewel had that issue. When he presented the first time these ideas to the society, it ended up that they kind of like yawned at it, like they didn't mm. really make a big deal of it, and it was disappointing to him. But before I describe some more of these difficulties about how he was trying to get this idea out into the public, let me tell you a few interesting facts about his life. Okay. He was tutored but in his early life by one of the most famous scientists of all time. This is somebody who you know all about. I feel like about. we use that term a lot. Huh? We, we, we use that most famous scientist. Oh. I use it a lot. But okay, it, sorry. But no, about, no, no, don't apologize. Yeah, no, no, You're no, saying no. there's a people out there, a lot of great people okay. out there. Yeah. Who was a famous scientist then? Okay. <laughs> who do you think this would be? There's somebody who was important to chemistry living around the time that he was. Do you know who it was? What was the dates again? Um, I believe the date was 18, 1845. Oh, that was when he that was when he did the presentation. So okay, we're so. talking about early 1800s, you know. Hmm. Uh, chemist or physicist? Chemist, Give me a hint. yeah. Really famous chemist. I want to say like then John Dalton. Yes, yeah. that's exactly right. John Dalton is the right okay. answer. That's great, yes. Mark. Uh -huh. And it turns out that John Dalton's ideas about the atom and stuff played a role here that I'll talk about later. Okay. You know, and Jewel's father, whose name was Benjamin Jewel, it was an interesting fellow in and of himself. He was a wealthy brewer. He brewed beer, basically, and... James helped him manage the brewery when he came of age, and this allowed him to run experiments with steam engines and motors that were at the brewery. So okay. imagine, you know, not only having these great ideas, but having the equipment to do the experiments on. And right, so, and that's, that's an advantage. Really big advantage, mm -hmm. yeah. So he had access to all the resources in addition to kind of like this really keen interest and high intellect that allowed him to contribute as much as anybody at the science of his times, you know? Yeah. Um, the really interesting thing is that while Joule was arguing over many years about his new theory of the mechanical equivalent of heat, there was this other theory out there that was kind of like different from his and was accepted before his and actually had some pretty important uh, proponents. And that's that caloric theory that I talked about before. Yes. Did you want to give everybody what your sense of the caloric theory was from like maybe a chemistry point of view? You know, it's something that like very... Um not seldom looked at like I, I i really we never use that uh you know in any particular you know experimentations or explanations mm -hmm. or theories to mm -hmm. be able to describe things so um i i don't have anything that would i would be able to say about well, what that. do you think caloric was because the caloric theory well, is going mean, to talk about recognize it was like a substance uh right. that, that heat was a substance and yeah. maybe it flowed from one substance uh, one material to another as a way of explaining why something cooled off and something heated heat. up yeah, yeah like mm -hmm. this material that mm -hmm. was in a, a part of hot things there was more caloric in it than there was things that were cold and so on right but some like a, a bit of an intangible kind of thing right, right? yeah it's nothing that you could 
pick up. That's right. Like yeah. an insensible sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, a couple of the most famous, again, I'm saying this again, most yeah, famous okay. scientists, <laughs> but we use Lavoisier a lot in our, in our talking here, but, yeah. um, he actually was one of the big proponents of caloric theory. You mm-hmm. probably That's and what I said, you said that at the earlier. beginning. Yeah. yeah. And a, another famous engineer who came up with heat engine theory called Saudi Carnot, the famous Carnot engine, which I've is the most efficient engine that you can theoretically make, even though you can't practically build it. Oh. Um, so the caloric theory uh, is interesting in the sense that it was supported by a lot of other scientists, but also when you think about it now, kind of silly, right? Like <laughs> basically the caloric idea was envisioned as a self-repellent fluid that flowed from warmer objects that to ones that are cooler that are in contact with it. Mm-hmm. So caloric was something that flowed from the warm to the cold, but it was a material, an insensible material. Did it have mass or anything like that? I don't that? know. No. I, I don't believe it did. I mean, according to what they were describing in the things that I read, it was more like just an insensible self-repellent okay. fluid. So like if <laughs> there was too much of it real close, it would repel itself. Okay. And so want to spread out, and if, if you will. Mm-hmm. And they were saying like, you know, if you lost heat by caloric from one thing, the thing that it gave it to must have gained it. So there was this sort of like uh, conservation idea associated with caloric in the same way we think about just conservation of Which energy. Which fits in with in the systems. things we were talking about before in terms of it. it's important to recognize that yeah. energy is not lost. Right. Now, uh, if I told you there was another term out there called phrygoric or phrygoric instead of caloric, would you believe me that that was also a uh, material that was used uh, to talk about energy? I want to. Be- that- <laughs> I want to believe you. I don't think it, you're pulling my leg. No, no. Uh, it's actually really, really interesting. There was this term called phrygoric, and it's it's kind of like a material that would flow from something that was cold into something that was warm. Oh, that makes interesting. So, so like refrigerate in the sense yeah, of refrigerate. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Okay. Uh, it obviously turned out not to be true in the same way that the caloric theory turned out not to be true. But there were people who believed in that. Yeah, I know, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, um, when, when the caloric theory was at its peak, people like Count Rumford and so on were doing experiments on cannon boring, which I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. You take a big drill bit and you just bore a hole in it uh, bore a hole in a piece of metal with it, and it would get really, really hot. And people were thinking that this caloric must have been inside the metal, and the drilling of it or the boring of it makes it release, it right? Out. But because Rumford was able to just continue to do this more and more and more, there, there seemed to be a never-ending supply of this caloric, which didn't fit well with the idea of there being a conservation of caloric. So that was kind of one of the first things that made it go in a maybe more negative direction. I see, yeah, because sort of the, the, the idea that you can do something that would be opposite of what you might predict should happen, then it sort of dooms that theory. Yeah, and people and then people like, like Jewel began to look at probably alternate ways to think about the same thing, right? right. So uh, the appeal of caloric theory didn't die easily, but it actually did die eventually when Jewel first presented some experimental results he was met with not a lot of uh, you know, uh, happy people because they were believers in the caloric theory. But a couple of years after he did that one time, he did another paper with more numbers and got a little bit maybe closer to what we now think is the mechanical equivalent of heat. Um, and after a while, it was a, he was able to convince everybody that his idea that motion is a type of energy that can be converted into heat, that became the acceptable way of looking at uh, you know, energy and the caloric theory was all of a sudden kind of out of the picture. Okay. Yeah. So uh, let me wrap things up here with uh, some interesting facts about Jules' life. 
His ideas are based on the notion that substances are made out of particles. Okay, so that shouldn't surprise I, you because of uh, being sort of taught by John Dalton. And that's exactly what I have. Mm-hmm. I wanted to okay. talk about is that Dalton's big idea was the idea of atoms, right? He came mm-hmm. up with the idea, or at least built on the Greek idea of atoms, right? The first person to really use experimentation to show evidence of atoms, right? Mm-hmm. He's that what would be called the father of atomic theory, I would guess. You know, the idea yeah, of atoms fa- and father so. of chemistry. Actually, yeah. he and Lavoisier are oftentimes mm-hmm. referred to in that way. Right. Right. So the fact that Dalton was uh, teaching him made him understand the importance of the particle-like nature of matter. And when particles are moving, even though we can't see them, they contain a certain type of energy of motion. And we call that kinetic energy now, but that motion of those particles, when it gets faster, in a sense is a a measure of the temperature of a substance. So if we have two objects that are touching each other, one that has a high temperature and one that has a low temperature, when their surfaces interact, when they touch, it's just the transfer of that kind of motion energy that allows the temperature to go down for the hot one and up for the cold one instead of the flow of caloric that's coming out of it. It's just that's a what I always define thing. as heat. It's the flow of energy due to temperature differences. Exactly. And temperature differences due to motions of particles and so on in different ways. Right. right? Now, in 1878, finally, Joule made his most precise measurement of the mechanical equivalent of heat, he determined that there were 772.55 foot-pounds of work that must be done to heat up water from 60 to 61 degrees Fahrenheit <laughs> when you're at sea level. Okay. So this is the same thing that's associated with now what we call one calorie of heat. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, calories are still used to measure kind of energy we get in foods as well, right? Sort of, yeah. yeah. I'm not perfectly because yeah. a, a kilocalorie yeah. or 1,000 calories is what we call a food calorie. That's right. So if you use Joule's definition, you can kind of take a look and say, well, this uh, piece of bread maybe has 75 calories in it. Mm-hmm. That's 75,000 of the calories that I'm talking about. Right. And each one of those has the ability to raise a certain amount of water from 60 to 61 degrees Fahrenheit. And they learn about that in a device called a calorimeter. A calorimeter, exactly. Where, where there's water that gets heated up or cooled down, mm-hmm. depending upon the reaction that's taking place. And the amount of temperature change you get by the specific amount of water that's mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. allows us to see the amount of energy that was released or gained by the system. Yeah, so this is still something that's important to science. Mm-hmm. Um, now, remember that number, 772.55? It turns out that that's the number that's etched in the top of his gravestone mm. and is a lasting tribute to his work. And I love that about scientists. Like, you know, some of the things that we look at nowadays is might be kind of gruesome or something. But mm. like, you know, taking that number that he painstakingly measured and putting it there for all to see, you know, for a really that's long amazing. time. It's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. A similar kind of thing was uh, on... Um um, Boltzmann's, Ludwig yeah, Boltzmann's right. gravestone, he has his entropy equation. Right. Um, and that's the S equals K log W that's on his headstone. Yeah. It's kind of neat to say, well, this is the, what the lasting thing that these these scientists gave us and it should last with them in a sense. Sure. Stephen um, Hawking too has one. Does he? Do you uh, remember what's a bunch on of, his? Uh, there's a series of constants that put they're put together that uh, I think uh, describe the... Um, the uh, gravitational pull inside of a black hole, but oh. I'm not positive. Okay, Something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, just the last thing here, a, a standard unit of energy that we knew, n- now use today is called the joule, right? It's named after James Joule mm-hmm. because of the contributions that he made. And just so that the people who are listening really fully either remember or need to know this, one joule of energy is what's called one Newton meter. And you can see now a Newton is a unit of force. Mm -hmm. A meter is a a unit of distance. So if you take an object 
and push it with one newton of force and it moves over one meter, mm-hmm. you will have expended one joule to make that happen, right? Okay. That's yep. the standard of uh, uh, energy that we now use in the uh, SI, the international system. And if you wanted to get a, a real physical sense of what that is, uh, if you've ever seen those... We call them snaps. It's like a little mm-hmm. rolled up paper, and inside yeah. of it is a little, like, sort of like gravelly kind of mixture. It has silver fulminate impregnated in the gravel. That's the chemical and if you squeeze there, yeah. it, yeah, it has a very low activation energy. And so mm-hmm. um, the amount of energy you'd get if you'd squeeze one of those is on the average about one joule. So if you yeah. wanted to get a sense for how much energy that was, That's really just squeeze one of those snaps. Having a sort of sense of that, because I think sometimes people hear a joule and say, what, what does that mean? Yeah, what is you know? it? Yeah. Well, a, a calorie, if you use that definition we just did for the joule, is 4.186 joules. Yeah. And a calorie that I'm using it here is one thousandth of a food calorie. That's right. So you can kind of uh, do some, some math with those. Oftentimes well. we'll use like a small C for a scientific calorie and a capital C for a food calorie. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So um, I think it's important now, because we've talked about lots of different things other than just the work of James Jewell, to recognize that the idea of energy does have a lot to do with our everyday lives. Absolutely. We take in food every day. We get energy from the chemicals stored inside of that food. We convert it into various types of energy, heat, motion, things like that. Um, And, you know, these sorts of things didn't come along automatically. They were brought about in terms of our understanding by the really difficult work of a lot of uh, important scientists. And uh, the idea that that James Joule gave us is the equivalent between equivalence between heat and mechanical energy. And, you know, take a look at a car nowadays. any sort of transportation device, rockets, things like that, are basically um, you know, formed on the idea that I can take some stored energy and convert it into some other type of energy, know exactly how much I have and what I can do with it. You yep. know? So um, that's all I wanted to say today about the idea of the jewel. I hope that everybody enjoyed this podcast, and we'll look more towards uh, some of the ideas that we mentioned today in future podcasts as well. So all right, thanks, Jackie. Mark. I have, I have a lot more energy now. I'm glad. I'm talking about this. <laughs> all right. Bye. Bye-bye. This has been MySciencePrep.com's Chemistry and Physics Podcast. It was produced in Pittsburgh, PA. Visit MyScience-Prep.com for more episodes.